Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by Nizar Hassan. Hello, Nizar. How's it going? Good. How are you? I am doing, you know, okay. It's been 181 days without a government. We've had 179 days since Hariri was designated, and this week was dominated by two big speeches. Indeed. We had a speech from Hassan Nasrallah, which was technically last week. It was on Saturday, uh, but we had recorded uh, too early to catch it last week. But then Hariri came out on Tuesday with sort of like a warring speech. And so we're going to get into that in a minute. Also, we had a lot of other things. Uh, Basile is shuttling around trying to fix the whole cabinet scenario. Nothing has happened yet. Let's talk about those speeches because Nasrallah was very adamant. Yes, exactly. He he was very clear. No compromise on the issue of the six Sunni MPs who want a seat in the cabinet. They're supporting them till the end. Right. And and the way this is is framed, this is, of course, over those six Sunni MPs led sort of by uh, Faisal Karami, who are saying, oh, well, there's six of us. We deserve at least one minister in the new government, right? Everything else has been decided. It, like th- there was a th- a deal in place and everything. And then all of a sudden, everyone thought this is not that big of a, a problem. And it has become a huge problem. It has become the big problem. And, and in his speech, Nasrallah basically s- said, oh, well, the uh, the Christians took five months to fix their problem, we we deserve at least, you know, this, the same amount of time to fix uh, this problem as well, right? Exactly. I think uh, it's very interesting how, first of all, how fierce he was in his position that there's absolutely no compromise. And he's used the, the words, we will stand by our, our we will stand by our, our allies for one year, two years, a thousand years, or till the day of judgment, you know, we'll never let them go, etc. This kind of rhetoric that is really very assertive. But also the attitude, as you're saying, the attitude in which he said it was quite aggressive towards, uh, for example, Walid Jumblat, the head of the PSP, or the LF for taking long with their own request for uh, shares in the cabinet. So exactly, he told Jumblat, you took four months, you obstructed cabinet formation for that long, you should literally, like, you should just shut up for four months and wait and see. And he used also uh, terms that were a bit uh, sarcastic, like he told him, if your antenna is catching that Iran is obstructing or Hezbollah is obstructing cabinet formation because Iran is trying to punish Lebanon, then you should fix your antenna because you're not getting it right, you know. This kind of language that does not usually come out of Nasrallah at all, it was like part of a speech that had a lot of attitude in it. And it's really kind of bizarre because I had I had thought, um, okay, clearly Hezbollah has made a tactical misstep here. That's sort of like how everybody has judged it, right? You know, they are being squarely blamed by basically every side for holding up cabinet right now. And it's not a good look for anyone to be blamed that, especially this late in the game, right? Exactly. And and so I would have expected them, you know, okay, the smart thing to do is just sort of like step down a bit, step back from the brink a bit. No, no, he, he went in and he doubled down. And I'm not really sure what the strategy is here, but it didn't really seem to work uh, considering what came on Tuesday. Exactly. But before we get to that, I mean, one also noticeable thing in Nasrallah's speech was when he addressed the issue of any um, speculations about tensions between Hezbollah and the FPM because Aoun sided with Hariri on the issue of the uh, independent Sunni MPs saying that it's not something that he should give away like a seat for these MPs. And this made all of us think, oh, well, there seems to be some tension if the two strategic allies have very different positions on this matter. Uh, but Nasrallah played down all of these um, talks and he said, even if Aoun gets, you know, 
11, 13, 15 MPs will happy. Aoun is our uh, ally, our main strategic and tactical ally. And we might disagree on some political details, but our alliance is stronger than that. And concerning the, the, the idea that maybe Aoun should give away one seat to the independent Sunni MPs instead of Hariri, uh, Nasrallah addressed that very directly and he said, we are not asking Aoun to do that at all, but if he wants to do it, we don't mind. Yeah, so it, it was a very strong speech, uh, a very strong stance, doubling down on on this thing that a lot of people had thought was a mistake. Uh, but then on Tuesday, Hariri came back, uh, and Hariri had been in France, right? So he flew back, back to the country, and he had this uh, news conference, this press conference, where he was like, nobody really knew what he was going to say. Everyone was like, well, he's not going to resign or anything, but who knows what he's going to say. And he just came out swinging. Basically, it, it was probably one of the best political performances of his career thus far, right? Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very strong. It was very direct. And it laid the blame squarely at Hezbollah's feet, which is, you know, one, one of the things that I think Nasrallah does well is that he comes across as very reasonable at times and is able to just like say a truth and it just resonates. Yeah. I felt that Hariri in his speech, he was able to sort of take that and, and able to just like lay down this truth and it, and it really resonated. Yeah, and I think that's one of the first times that this happens. I, I completely agree. It was one of his best performances. And it's because his position is much easier to defend. Let's be honest. Hariri does not have in principle to give away this seat because although these uh, Sunni MPs represent people, they are part or half of them are parts of different blocks. So they do not represent a political bloc. And Harir was very clear. Had they come to me as a bloc, had they had a bloc before the elections and said, we are running as one bloc and after the election will be one bloc in parliament, I would have been forced, and that's what he said, to give them one seat. But because they were not a bloc and because they are, some of them are part of different blocs, then they have no right to ask for this. Yeah, one one of them is in Hezbollah's bloc, one of them is in Amal's bloc, and two of them are in like the, the Karami uh, Marada bloc in parliament. Exactly. And all of these blocs are being represented. So what's the basis of this except the fact that they are all Sunni, as we said before, there's nothing else. So Hariri is in a strong position. And what he did smartly in the speech, apart from like, a good performance is also the fact that in political positioning he put himself in a strong position because he first of all he kind of used the leverage of Aoun being on his side and like by using Aoun in specific ways to make sure that he has the the kind of the cover or the sponsorship of the president while doing this and not being critical of Aoun at all uh, except at the one very minor point in the speech he also used Birri in an interesting way when he said, me and, and House Speaker Birri were ready to go to Abda to form the cabinet before Hezbollah put this condition that obstructed everything. So he kind of also put Birri against Hezbollah, which takes a, a lot of courage to do because, you know, Birri and, and Hezbollah now are in, seem to be in this uh, divine alliance, the Thunaiya Shi'iya, you know, the Shiite uh, duo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, that that also rang true just because Berri appeared to be surprised by Hezbollah's obstructionism on, on formation of cabinet when it happened, right? Exactly. What, one thing that I want to point out here is that Haruri at one point said that like, oh no, I, I'm not trying to monopolize the Sunni sect or anything like that. In fact, like he did this swap sort of with President Aoun 
so that Aun would appoint one of the Sunnis and uh, Hariri would appoint a Christian, right? Uh, so they, they maintain the same number of seats that each one of them gets, but each would get to appoint somebody of the other sect, right? That was one point that Hariri made. And then another point that he made was that, and this was a surprise to me, and I, I think uh, most other observers, we didn't know this beforehand, but he said that he had uh, agreed to name somebody uh, from Makati's uh, or, or in consultation with uh, Najib Ma'ati, uh, one of his, you know, rivals, uh, yeah. a major force in Tripoli politics, uh, MP, former prime minister, right? And so that really bolstered that claim of like of, of him saying, oh, I'm not trying to monopolize things, at least on the Sunni side of things, right? Exactly, because his, his excuse is, is also reasonable. He's saying if Mikati has a block and he has a sizable block, then he deserves to be participant in one way or another in the cabinet. Right, and Mi'ati has four seats. Exactly, so he qualifies as a as a small but present block. But otherwise he was, I, I like the sentence he was using, Harir was using in the, in the speech. He was saying, I don't accept any new customs, you know, any new traditions that you are going to create for this cabinet. We're not going to accept that. This is how we determine the number of seats for for the number of MPs, etc. But at, at the same time, while he was saying, I'm not trying to monopolize being the Sunni sect, he did make this, you know, very interesting statement. He is the father of all Sunnis. Yeah, it was so weird because he said it right after that sentence. <laughs> he was like, I am not trying to monopolize the Sunni sect. I am the father of, of Sunnis in Lebanon and I know where their interest is. And I know how to protect them and defend defend their causes. It was such a weird statement because it's, it was too honest, you know. It was like too explicit. Yeah, yeah. And it, okay, so to my Western ear, I hear that, and it sounds like very patronizing, you know. And and I I tend to sort of agree with Amal Saad, who's a professor at Lebanese University, uh, pro Hezbollah. She's on Twitter. She tweets a lot. Uh, and she says, as she said on Twitter that, oh, you're, you're supposed to be the father of all Lebanese, not just the Sunnis. Uh, but on the other hand, I I feel as though that what, what Hariri said really plays well on the Sunni street. I think it's a bit provocative for some areas and less so and maybe more positive for other areas. You know, it depends on, on the political tensions that exist there because some areas do not like when Hariri takes them for granted at all. And they have showed that in the elections, right? Because this is why we have the issue, because Hariri did not win like the overwhelming majority of Sunni seats. He won a considerable portion, but not all of them. 17 of 27, yeah. Exactly. So you have 10 MPs who do not fall under his, his political patronage. And that's a big statement. It's a bit provocative. But he also he was not only saying, like, I am the father of the Sunnis. He also kind of implied that the Hezbollah, is, as a Shiite organization, political uh, side is trying to take over the Sunnis uh, because when he, when he said I am the father of the Sunnis he continued and he said we don't accept that any sect dominates the Sunnis and the country's interests so he was very clear you know this kind of rhetoric we were hearing a lot of it before the May 7 clashes in 2008 uh, they remind us of this very escalated Sunni Shiite tension so I mean, there was a, there was also a lot of that kind of rhetoric right before in the lead up to the elections this year as well right? yeah always so yeah, I, I don't know where things go from here. Ba basically, it seems as though everybody is just sort of like stepping up, seeing who's going to blink first. As, as I have said before on this podcast, it seems that Aoun has learned that you don't blink. And if you don't blink, 
then you get what you want in politics, in Lebanese politics. It seems as though perhaps uh, Hassan Nasrallah has learned that lesson as well. And it seems that Saad Hariri has learned that lesson as well. So I don't know what's going to happen here. It doesn't seem like a cabinet is going to happen. Maybe other, the, other than that. Maybe the original winner, Aoun, will be the one who will resolve the situation by giving away one seat. Who knows? That's very optimistic, my friend. I think this is what Hezbollah and Hariri are wishing would happen. Oh, you think they're in cahoots on this? No, but like if they had coordinated this, they would have done the same thing. I think this is very effective in making Aoun give away the seat and... He's probably going to do it because he's the only one who would do it, in my opinion. I don't think there's anything in Alan's history to suggest that that is a remote possibility, but uh, maybe. Who knows? Um, Very quickly, we had a few other things happen this week. Parliament met on Monday. They passed a raft of laws. Most significantly, uh, they passed a law that would set up a commission to uh, look into the disappeared. There were some 17,000 people who disappeared during the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, So this commission is supposed to get set up now. It's supposed to investigate all this stuff. So that's a big win for the families there. Uh, there were a lot of other things. There was a funding passed for uh, for electricity to buy oil, uh, to buy fuel. Also, we had lawyers here in Beirut. They just got they're fed up. Uh, they threatened to strike this week. They had a protest on Monday. One of their major complaints uh, is violations of the so-called immunity principle. Basically, if anything happens that uh, involves a lawyer, like a, a police arrests, a raid, anything like that, uh, it has to like go through the bar association first it, it can't you can't just like a police officer just can't just come up and arrest a, a member of the bar willy-nilly unless they're caught in flagrante delicto right in the act yeah and so the lawyers are complaining that this and, and some other things like are being violated and they're really fed up with it and so they're threatening to strike uh one really big thing that we have to talk about is the reconciliation that happened this week between uh Suleiman Frangie and Samir Jaja. This is something that goes back, you know, 40 years to June 1978 when the Aten massacre happened. Uh, and, and this was a brigade of the LF led by Samir Jaja and Eli Hobea, who went to uh, Frangia's residence in Ehedin. Um, and uh, they had clashes with the uh, Merida militiamen, and they ended up killing uh, Suleiman's father, Tony, his mother, and his sister. His, his sister was three years old at the time as well, uh, as well as uh, a few dozen others. Now, Samir Jaja claims that he was not a part of this or that he did not uh, take part in the actual raid itself, that he got injured beforehand and therefore uh, couldn't. Uh, but, but that, I mean, whether or not he took part in it, I, I think is sort of beside the point. Uh, he was one of the people who was a, a part of the command. He was uh, integral, obviously, in planning it and carrying it out. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, it was a really, really big deal that, that, that this happened to begin with. It, it went way outside the bounds of, of what was deemed acceptable as far as rivalries are considered back at the time. And obviously for the Frangies, I mean, how do you ever forgive something like that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to forgive. I, I was shocked that this happened like out of a sudden. I wasn't hearing of any like thing to pave the way for it. By the way, for background on this, we should tell our listeners to go to the Bashir Jmail episode where we talked about uh, how Bashir Jmail, then the leader of the Lebanese forces, was trying to consolidate power among the Christian militias. And this is why this is the context in which this massacre happened for background. But for this reconciliation event, it was very clear from what they said, from what uh, Suleiman Frangi from what the mediators said, like uh, the people representing the patriarch, that there are no political strings attached to this. There is no political convergence between the two sides. It was really just like 
they were they use the word spiritual but i think it's like more like a you know a social moral thing you know to get over this episode maybe to pave the way for future political connections in the future but it, there's absolutely nothing that our listeners should worry about in terms of a sudden alliance between Simon Fergie and Samir Jarja that's not going to happen but certainly not certainly not but at the same time it, every observer looking at this it is seeing oh well they both don't like Gibran Basile. Everybody's looking at 2022, the next uh, presidential election. Both Samir Jaja and Suleiman Frangia want to be the next president of Lebanon. Indeed. And so this is sort of like an early, like, tactical move, uh, according to most observers, uh, before that happens. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and also, like, if you just look at Suleiman Frangia's face during this, uh, during the event, I mean, he wasn't bubbly. I'll put it that way. No one's face was very settled, to be honest. If that you, is if, true. Yeah. Not Samir Jaja's, not Srida's, no. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no love lost between these two sides. No. For sure. Okay, so very quickly, we should just note also that the United States uh, imposed more sanctions uh, on Hezbollah, that, that on four individuals that they say uh, were connected to Hezbollah, especially in Iraq. And also the State Department uh, named uh, Jawad Nasrallah, the son of Hassan Nasrallah, as a global terrorist. That's a nice title. It sounds kind of badass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so our main topic for this week is, is looking ahead to Independence Day, November 22nd, 1943, Lebanon became independent. And this year, this coming Thursday, it'll be 75 years, 75 years of independence. That's, uh, you know, three quarters of a century. That's a long time. But, but I mean, the question looming over all of this, though, is, you know, it is Lebanon really independent? You know, for, I mean, for instance, the first three years of Lebanon's independence for 43 to 46, French troops were still here. Right, they didn't leave till like the end of the end of the year, uh, 1946, right? That's true. I mean, if you, if we look at the history, this question specifically uh, has a very obvious answer. If we look at the history, Lebanon has never really been independent, right? I mean, before 1943, before the official independence for the French, there was really not a one moment when when Lebanon as an ancient state was like a full project supported by all the quote-unquote Lebanese because this country as a nation state itself was a project that was opposed by half the population and supported by the other half and not until like the national pact right the 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 fact that founded this sectarian system that we have that founded the Lebanese political system um, was signed that the 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 side that was uh, supportive of the annexation of Lebanon to Syria kind of conceded and accepted that Lebanon would be an independent state. Uh, there was a very important vision in Lebanon, political vision, that said we are Arabs, we are part of the Levantine, we are not like some kind of an independent nation state and we shouldn't try to be. On the other hand, uh, obviously led by the Christians of Mount Lebanon, there was a big movement for having Lebanon as a nation state. So from the beginning, it wasn't really a smooth process. And there was so many sides intervening in Lebanon during the autumn, late Ottoman times before the French took over in 1918. Even after the French took over, there was always some tensions between them and the British. Uh, before that, the Italians were involved, but then it was mainly the French and the British. And then after the, as you said, after the independence in 43, you had three years until the French actually withdrew. The French interests continued to be very significant in Lebanon, especially economically. All the capital that was invested in Lebanon would not just vanish, right? So it was very important for the politics as well. 
And in the beginning of the 50s, like all countries of the world, Lebanon was subjected to to get like a ch- shrapnel of of the Cold War that uh, was happening, especially escalating in the in the 50s. And in the 50s, it was like the first example of how the independent Lebanon would be almost destroyed by proxy politics. You know, um, Nasser w- took over in Egypt with the uh, free officers revolution revolts. And the Nasserism as an ideology was getting more and more popular across the Arab world, including Lebanon. And uh, this was the time also mid-50s when the Baghdad Pact was signed uh, between Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Turkey and the UK to form a military alliance south of the Soviet Union of strong states that could um, that could be like, you know, one of the main poles in this Cold War. And our president back then, Kamil Shamoun, uh, was supportive of the Baghdad Pact, and he was kind of flirting with it as if he wants Lebanon to join it. He was generally considered a pro-West uh, politician, Totally, right? by all yeah. standards, yes. And uh, the critical moment was in 1956, when Egypt was subjected to the attacks by Israel and then France and the United Kingdom, and everyone was supporting uh, Egypt. At least all Arabs were standing by Egypt and boycotting the forces that attacked it. Uh, Kamil Shamoun did not, and this triggered um, the mini civil war in 1958. This was one of the background reasons, not like the direct trigger. But this kind of gives the idea of how important these regional alignments were back then. And they never stopped being so important. In the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, it was Palestine that was the center of the regional politics, and Lebanese politics became more and more centralized around the Palestinian question. And you had the alignment of the right, meaning the Christian forces. Um, on the other hand, you had the, the mostly Muslim Druze and Palestinian uh, coalition of forces, which um, introduced the, like the, set this, the scene for the civil war to happen. And obviously, during a civil war, proxy politics gets even more um, explicit and more dominant. In our case, for the 15 years, Uh, of war, we had most importantly Israel and Syria as supporters of major uh, militias. There is Israel supporting the uh, Israel supporting Qatayb than the Lebanese forces, and Syria supporting v- many people actually, but most more consistently Amal movement, um, the SSNP, uh, and for a certain period of the war, uh, the Progressive Socialist Party. And but, not to not to mention, not only were they supporting Israel and, and Syria were supporting militias in the country, they had their own troops in the country for exactly. a, lot of the, a, a lot of the fighting, right? So it was not only about proxy anymore. And in 1982, for example, when Israel occupied half of Lebanon, Syria was here. Um, and the dynamics that existed tell you something about like the kind of politics that these forces play in Lebanon, which is not direct confrontation, but rather through these uh, small smaller forces, the militias. But you also had Iran uh, infiltrating the proxy politics scene in 1982, especially with the formation of Hezbollah and supporting a more minor group in North Lebanon, the Islamist Unionist Movement. You also had Libya, a major player in the civil war because of the amount of support it was giving to the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was one of the main factions in the civil war, probably one of the strongest, if not the strongest, and because of their role in allegedly in the disappearance of um, Musa Sadr, the founder of the Amal movement who went to uh, to visit Gaddafi and then disappeared. So you had all of these forces in the civil war. You also had the US, US intervening at some point with the Marines. Didn't go very well. Then it withdrew. The US was not maybe one of the most significant ones. 
but the situation in general certainly was one of very complicated proxy politics. Uh, the Soviet Union was also involved in some cases supporting the communists or the left-wing parties, the PLO, but more modestly than in other uh, situations because the alignments here are not at all similar to places where there was like a communist versus Western war. But but at the same time, if you go back and look at, you know, like U.S. diplomatic dispatches from, you know, like the 50s, 60s, 70s, you'll see that the U.S. very much viewed Lebanon just like in terms of the Cold War. It, it, yeah. it, it, it really was sort of like black and white, like who can we trust, who is closer to us, who is closer to like the communists or something like that. Yeah, it was not very, perhaps it was not as nuanced a uh, political calculation uh, and like when you read all these like reflections on that that time, the policies related to Marines coming and Marines leaving, etc. You see that there is a bit of a mess that was happening over there in terms of foreign policy. Very different from what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, after the civil war, uh, the solution was the Ta'if Accord signed in Saudi Arabia. And this is very significant, significant because Saudi Arabia now... Um, although it had a major role in uh, supporting some factions in the civil war, it was not the same at all as what was ha- what later happened after the civil war. Basically, Saudi Arabia um, infiltrated the Lebanese political scenes in many ways, right? Uh, there was, first of all, the sponsorship of the Ta'if Accord, which was extremely important. There was also the sponsorship of Hariri as the... Mis- I mean, I would argue that is the... that Like, that's it. That is the defining way that they sort of muscled their way in to having uh, power in Lebanon right? yeah. or significant power. Yeah, totally. And it was so significant because Hariri's power as the reconstruction guy, as the prime minister who had good relations with the Syrians because the Syrians were the co-sponsors of the Taif Accord, of course, because without the Syrians, the Taif Accord was, would have been impossible. They were literally occupying most of the countries and politically speaking, ruling over the country so it was a syrian saudi thing and this is the kind of politics that continued until for for more than a decade you know saudi syrian tensions and saudi syrian agreement would determine to a certain extent what happens in lebanon so these two players became the major forces major poles playing proxy in lebanon and in 2005 after the assassination of hariri one of the most important uh, events in lebanon's recent political history the Syria-Saudi tensions became even more dominant because the, the, the kind of division that we had with March 8 and March 14, they made proxy politics um, way simpler. You know, there are two main political camps. Each has one main sponsor. Saudi Arabia sponsoring the one with Hariri because they had always done that. And the smaller allies, the PSP and the LF, joined in and they accepted the Hariri, the Saudi sponsorship. On the other hand, Hezbollah and Amal at the SSNP were very clear in their allegiance to Syria because the moment that, that the, the withdrawal of the Syrians was an imminent event, they went to the streets and they said, Shukran Suri al-Assad, we are behind you, we, you are still our main sponsor and ally, etc. So it was very clear that uh, there was a section of the political class that was very, um, was very insistent on its relationship with the Syrian regime. Which also makes sense because, I mean, over that period of time, you know, Syrian domination in the country, Syria, you know, a lot of people owed their allegiance, their positions, their salaries to the largesse of of, of the Syrian uh, Syrian state uh, organs, right? Exactly. And I remember back then the word seen, seen, Saudi, Syria, was the most significant thing in politics. Like, every time there's any... You know, like today we're talking about cabinet and formation. Everything back then was like about scene, scene, right? If there is an agreement between Saudis and the Syrians, we would have an agreement, a political agreement here. And this was maybe smoother than we think because 
both powers until 2011 had good relationship with the US. So in terms of re- international politics, there wasn't really a big clash happening here. Nothing like the clash between Nasserism and uh, pro-Western uh, Shamoun. Nothing like uh, th- what was happening in the civil war. It was mostly just a battle over dominance. But internationally speaking, there wasn't a big clash happening in Lebanon, at least. And of course, that brings us to the Syrian civil war, uh, you know, from 2011 to the present. We're still living through that. You know, Syria has been like very much isolated uh, during this time. But that means that uh, other people have also stepped in, right? Iran seems to be playing a larger role in Lebanese politics than they used to through Hezbollah, of course. Exactly. So now the proxy war is more like between Iran and and Saudi Arabia rather than uh, Syria and Saudi Arabia. Which mirrors, you know, the, the regional trend, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so to come back to the original question then, you know, has Lebanon ever really been independent? Are, are we celebrating 75 years of independence this year? Of course not, Habibi, no. We don't have anything close to independence, I think. Fair enough. Like, the, that, that is, you know, I think if you look at the history, that's a very compelling argument that, you know, Lebanon has never really been able to sort of, like, exercise its own, you know, free will, so to speak. But why is that the case? Why is Lebanon such a you know, I guess, fertile ground for others to, you know, meddle in? Well, I think to begin with, I don't think it was ever meant to be independent in any way, right? I mean, first of all, as a nation state, it's a very uh, new idea. It emerged late before uh, it actually was manifested in '43. So in 1920, we had the idea of Greater Lebanon being uh, formally uh, emphasized by the French or agreed to by the French. And it's because, really, because the Sykes-Picot agreement that kind of divided the pieces of land in the region into countries was a colonial maneuver. It was not supposed to be creating like independent or stable or sovereign pieces of land. It was, it was divvying up the spoils. Exactly. Of the winners of World War One. yeah. But beyond that, I think there are many reasons for why uh, proxy politics is so important in Lebanon. And one of them is that local leaders have always sought some kind of major powers support for their maneuvers in Lebanon, like in terms of sponsorship. They always wanted to, you, you as, a, as a major political leader, you always need someone to kind of sponsor you. And this is for many reasons. I think one of them uh, that is very important, in my opinion, is uh, the fact that the the, the that violence itself has always been so integral to Lebanese political dynamics. And since the independence, you've had coup d'etats or attempted coup d'etats. You've had political revolts in 48 and 58. And you've had mounting political tensions in the early 70s that led to civil war. And violence has always been there in the air, right? And when you have violence, you have militias, you require sponsorship. So this kind of makes... Proxy politics almost inevitable for such a small, insignificant country. I mean, that almost sounds like you're victim blaming there, but uh, I, I do see the the logic of it, right? But it it wouldn't work if like Lebanese themselves weren't so divided, and that that was done sort of on purpose as well, right? As, as you speak about, like when Greater Lebanon was created and everything, uh, it it does seem to be sort of like easily divided and and ruled, right? Because you had two major groups in the country, you know, if you just sort of like painting with a broad brush, you had, you know, the Christians who were very afraid of becoming uh, like the tiny minority within a greater Syria. And then you had like the Muslims who were like, well, no, but historically we are a part of 
Syria. You know, like we have these relationships, uh, these historical, these trade relationships uh, that going back centuries, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that you can't just get rid of. And, and so, and you know, like classically, when you when it when it's analyzed, you you have this is sort of like the major issue with Lebanese politics and with foreign intervention is that it's in sort of like everyone's interest to have this both inside Lebanon and outside of Lebanon for the concerned actors to have this situation uh, where everything is just fractured and doesn't really work. And everybody's sort of like at each other's throats, sometimes violently. Yeah. And I think this sectarian dynamic that you're talking about is not like self-evident. It it doesn't have to be this way. It was institutionalized by the Ottomans when they divided rules on sectarian basis in Mount Lebanon. Then by the French when they established sectarian, like they sponsored the sectarian structure of the Lebanese political system as a whole. And by the Taif Accord, by every every major power that has sponsored any deal in Lebanon, it was always about sectarianism and institutionalizing and entrenching sectarianism in the Lebanese system. And the the fact that you have now like major sectarian leaders, local zaims, who use the state's resources, they have, you know, a limited number of sources for their money and their, their resources. They have the state, they have their capitalist friends, rich uh, or old oligarchs, etc. And they have foreign sponsorship. And with the amount of net of clientelism that exists here with the huge welfare networks of private organizations like Future and Hezbollah, etc., you need more than the state's resources to do that and more than your bourgeois friends who are, of course, too stingy to, to fund all of this, right? I, I do take that argument. I would only note that, uh, you know, those first two are very much in, intertwined. You know, the state power basically allows you to decide who is you who you're going to make rich in the private sector a lot of times and then like they can come back and fund you in elections and stuff like that it's uh, <laughs> indeed, uh, one, indeed as we just saw in in the in may in the elections right but yeah i i think that that's a very valid point um but my question then would be well it, is there any way out of this is, is there any hope for lebanon yeah this is the question that we are always faced by as you know people who are active in, in the independent political scene in lebanon people say even if you fix things here uh, you cannot do anything with Lebanon as a, as, a, as a country, as a nation, because there are these foreign powers that are always um, going to stop anything constructive from happening. And the, the regional politics will al- always dominate over local politics. And I think this is like definitely one of our biggest challenges, because how can you think of uh, like progressive social change in Lebanon if the two major forces are the most counter-revolutionary forces in in the region. You know, Saudi Arabia and Iran play proxy politics in Lebanon, and these two are, like, maybe the worst in supporting all kind of fundamentalism and all kind of destructive politics in different parts of the region. So I understand that this is maybe the biggest challenge, but unless there is some kind of a social force in Lebanon that is significant politically in terms of representation in the political institution, because we're not going back to, to, to militias, hopefully, if we don't have this kind of social force that is progressive and is more about uh, non-alignment with these two sides, then I think that would be the death of hope completely. I mean, and in the current Lebanese system, like there really is zero space for that to grow. I, I, I kind of expected you to, to come back and say, oh, well, if the lira collapses and there's a massive uh, you know, financial crisis and everything goes down the tubes and there's going to be like a people's revolution or something. And, and, and then uh, Lebanon will be good again. 
But no. <laughs> no, we're not mobilizing enough for that to happen. I mean, even if there's a financial crisis, yeah. even if there's like a massive, like the lira is devalued, you know, all of the rich people flee because I don't know, they're getting robbed. Uh, yeah, I don't think we have enough. Had we organized well enough, Uh, I think I would have hoped for that kind of scenario, but I think anything more violent than large protests now will turn counter-revolutionary within minutes because uh, we have a very creative and unstoppable counter-revolutionary political class. That that sounds like a topic for another podcast. Totally. All right. Well, uh, happy Independence Day, everybody. Uh <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I think we're going to have to end it right there. I'll be back next week. Uh, and then, Nizar, you will be back with me the week after that. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.